It's a pleasure to be back with you. I've been on a little bit of a hiatus, but it's always a joy to meet with you early in the morning to study God's Word. I invite you to go ahead and open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12, starting in verse 10. If y'all were here last week, uh, we came to a major turn in uh, the story of this divine drama we've been studying in Genesis. Uh, For several chapters now, we've been looking at some pretty dark things. Uh, The spread of sin, death, destruction. We saw the flood of the world. We see God's judgment. But now, in chapter 12, we come to the call of Abram, starting in verse 1, where finally we begin to see how God is going to fulfill that amazing promise, that proto-evangelon he gave back in Genesis 3.15, where through the seed of the woman, he's going to restore and redeem the world. Everything that we've been looking at up to this point has been leading to the call of Abram. Now, if you weren't here last week, Todd opened up chapter 12 for us, and he showed us some amazing things uh, in these first nine verses. If you weren't here, I highly encourage you to go back and listen to it. But I'll just give you a quick recap. We have two major characters, and it's kind of a showdown. Uh, The first character, you have Abram, right? And he's this uh, pagan moon worshiper who was just minding his own business and his idolatry. Didn't know God. He's just going about his business. But then you have Yahweh, the one true creator God who is the sovereign, uh, uh, majestic king and judge over all of creation. Now, what's going to happen when these two uh, folks meet? Well, I'll tell you what happened. God, in his marvelous grace, called Abram, this pagan, out of darkness. He just plucked him right out of his of his going about his idolatry and going about his rebellion, God in his marvelous grace called Abram out of darkness and actually spoke to him audibly. Remember how big of a deal that would have been, right? Because Abram, he worshipped false gods. Those false gods were statues made out of stone and wood. They were lifeless. They did not speak. They did not respond. They did not interact. But all of a sudden, he hears the voice of the one true and living God. What in the world did that sound like? Uh, in my imagination, it sounds something like Pastor Tim Russell. I don't know why. Uh, truthfully, he is the only pastor on staff that when he calls in the worship service us to raise our hands for the prayer of invocation, the my two-year-old son actually listens to. It could actually just be in the hallway. If my son hears Tim Russell, he automatically just looks heavenward. I don't know what it is. There's something divine about that man. But I don't know what he sounded like, but the point is is that God, the true and living God, actually spoke to this undeserving man named Abram. Abram actually listened to God speak these amazing, immense blessings over him. He says, Abram, I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to give you a great name, secondly. Now that's set side by side with the story that we have in the Tower of Babel. We see the difference there. In the Tower of Babel, they were trying to make their own name great, right? But now in chapter 12, we have a God who said he's going to make his name great. God only makes people great. But anyway, so he blessed Abram to be a a mighty nation, to give him a a great name. He says he's just simply going to bless the pants off Abram, give him these amazing blessings, things that this world cannot offer, things that were beyond his imagination. And the whole purpose of that was for the Lord to bless the entire world through Abram. And all of that, really, is that Genesis 3.15 plan beginning to take shape. Now, that's amazing. What's equally as amazing is Abraham believed God, right? Because you remember, 
Even though God gave Abram a foretaste of those blessings, God was straight up with Abram. He told Abram, listen, you will not experience the total fulfillment of these promises. They will be filled long after you are dead. But Abram didn't care. <laughs> he just believed God. And he trusted God. God had blessed him with faith. He called him out of darkness. He gave him the gift of faith. And Abram lived by faith boldly. We see that in verses 4 through 9. We remember the things that Abram did. He left everything he had known, right, to follow the God that he barely knew into the land of the unknown. And once he got into the land of promise, he met all of these pagan people groups that were violent, archaeology tells us. But Abram didn't care. He wasn't afraid. And seemingly, he evangelized because his number grew. He proclaimed the, the name of the Lord. He called upon the name of the Lord. While there, he was a man of prayer. He prayed often. He erected these structures of worship. And by the way, he did all of this starting at the age of 75 years old, which is so encouraging, right? Because it doesn't matter how old you are. You're never too old to start following the Lord. He just uses us until we're all used up, God does. But anyway, we left last week with this great hero of the faith, this old but bold man who trusted the Lord, believed on the Lord, and had deep devotion with God. However, that's not the Abram that we meet in our passage today. He's just not there. In fact, the Abram that we find today hardly exhibits any faith at all in chapter 12, verse 10 through 20. Last week, if he was on the highway of faith last week, today we find him plunged into the pit of fear and faithlessness. And we're going to ask ourselves, what in the heck happened from verse 9, from verse 10, for that dramatic change to take place? I think we're going to see that in our text. I think we're also going to find, too, that we're going to see ourselves in this Abram. I don't know about you, but oftentimes I find myself in that pit of fear and faithlessness. Some of you might be there right now, and you're asking yourself, how in the world did I get in this place? And you might be asking yourself, too, how in the world am I going to get out of it? The great news, brothers, is that this passage answers both of those questions. So let's read it together. Genesis chapter 12, starting at verse 10. Now there is a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you're a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say that you're my sister, that it might go well with me because of you, and that my life might be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was indeed very beautiful, and when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman, Sarai, was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say that she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. 
Heavenly Father, again, we are so grateful that not only have you called us out of darkness, but you have called us here this morning to remind us of who you are in the beauty and the glory and the power of your gospel. Father, we don't know why everyone is here today. All of us are here for different reasons. All of us are coming from different contexts. There's things in our life that cause us great fear. We might even be in a pit of faithlessness right now. But Father, you are a faithful God. And so Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes once again to who you are and what your promises are and the security of them in Jesus Christ. And you would mesmerize us with your grace. Do a mighty work in our hearts, O Lord. Send your spirit, because we cannot do that by ourselves. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Um, Y'all might know the answer to this question. I'm terrible at Bible trivia. This is like the only Bible trivia question that I know the answer to offhand. Y'all might know the answer to this. Um, But if I were to ask you what was the most common command in the Bible, what would you say? Did we have an answer? What was that? I can't hear you. Fear not. Fear not, right? That's like the only one I know offhand. Um, some people might say it's one of the thou shall nots, or maybe it's the love God, love your neighbor. That's certainly the most important. But like you said, truly, the, the most common command in the Bible is do not fear. In fact, some scholars say that depending on the version that you read, the search engine that you use, and the configuration of words, that there's close to 365 do not be afraid in the Bible, one for every day of the, of the year. Now, I'm not sure if that's true, but what is true is that do not be afraid is, in fact, the most common command in the Bible, which is very encouraging because that tells us something about the God that we serve. It's also very sobering because it tells us a lot about the Christian life, I think. First off, it tells us about the world that we live in. There's a lot to be afraid of in this life that we live. And secondly, as sinners, even as Christians, we are susceptible to be afraid. I think that's true of me. I think that's true of you. That was certainly true of Abram. You see, Abram was a man who lived in a time frame that I call um, the in-between time, right? Because he had received the promises of God, but he was also waiting on the fulfillment of those promises. And as vibrant as Abram started his faith journey, it was, it was very soon that he realized that living in that space between place, that time, is a difficult one. And in that regard, I think as Christians, we can relate to Abram because eschatologically speaking, as Christians, we are living in the already, not yet. We have already received the promises of Christ. And true, some of these promises have come to fulfillment. We have a new heart. We're indwelt by his spirit. We're justified by faith even now. But still, for the most part, we're waiting on the complete fulfillment of those promises, And it's in that space between that we come face to face with very scary things in this life. The fact that this world is still broken, that we have hardships, that we will suffer, that we will face temptation. And it's my experience that oftentimes when we come face to face with those realities, it's often that my vision of God begins to dim. And where I was on the highway of faith, I find myself being plunged into the pit of fear And faithlessness. Have you been there before? Some of you might be there right now. But here's the good news. 
this Bible, this, this passage, it answers those questions for us of about why we're there in the first place and how do we get out. Not only do we see wonderful lessons from looking at the failure of faith in Abram about how we are to live by faith in this in-between time, we receive even greater encouragement about the faithfulness of God for when we do fail. There's three things that I want us to see. One, we're just going to look at the, the failure of faith in Abram in verses 10 through 16. Then in verses 17 through 20, we're going to look at the faithfulness of God. Then after that, we're going to finish up quickly with three principles of how we can live by faith in this space between. Okay, so let's just look first at the failure of faith from our brother Abram in verses 10 through 20. Last week, Todd said that one of the great blessings of the Bible is that the Bible does not sugarcoat our biblical heroes. And it certainly doesn't. I mean, unlike other ancient Near Eastern texts, like those that we have from the Hittites or the Egyptians, for example, those who uh, airbrushed out their very important people in their texts, the Bible does not do that. The Bible is real with the people, the men and women that God used. We see their flaws, we see their mistakes, we see their sins, we see their grit and grime, and Abram is no different. In this passage, he does not look like a hero of the faith. He looks like a scumbag. And we're going to really flesh that out to see that he was, in fact, acting like a scumbag. Now, first off, that's very important, apologetically speaking, because it really speaks into the historicity of the Bible, right? The Bible is plain to us. It does not lie to us. It's clear. We can trust it to be true, unlike some of those other ancient Near Eastern texts which airbrush everything out. So apologetically, that's very important that we really see the flaws of our father in the faith, Abram. But for this passage and for our lesson today, this is very important too. Because the failure of faith that we see displayed by Abram in this passage, he again repeats in chapter 20. Circumstances are a little bit different, but he essentially does the same thing. And it's again repeated by his son in chapter 26. So that might tell us something about, you know, Learn behavior. That's a lesson for a different time. But, but whenever the Bible repeats a pattern two or three times, it screams at us to pay attention to what's being communicated. Now, I think there's three things that God is communicating to us in regards to the failure of Abram's faith. First and foremost, in verses 10 through 12, is that whenever we take our eyes off of God, we will be driven by fear. Whenever we take our eyes off the Lord, we will be driven by fear. Let's think about the context. In that ancient times, the Nile River would flood about annually. It flooded all the time, and because of that, the Nile Valley, the Nile Basin, uh, was, was abundant with, with uh, uh, you know, foliage and food, and it was just a, an abundant resource for the surrounding areas that would often experience drought and famine. Say, for example, the land of Canaan. When the land of Canaan would experience famine and drought, they would often go into Egypt, and Egypt was okay with this, and the, those other pagan nations would go into this Nile Valley to be sustained, to fill their bellies until rain came back to wherever they were from. That's what Abram does in verse 10. We know that's what his intentions were with that word sojourn we see in verse 10. Sojourn is meant to indicate that he was not planning to take up real estate in Egypt. He simply went there to be sustained long enough until rain returned to the land of Canaan. So he was going to go back at a certain period of time when that happened. Now that just seems like common sense to us. I'm, I'm sure that all of us would do the same thing too, especially if we're supporting our spouses, and if we have children, or our family, or friends, or whatever else. We would do that because it's just common sense, right? There's no food in the land of promise. There's food in Egypt, so let's just go there and get some food. Even though on the surface that seems like common sense, from the rest of this story we are to understand, and it's made clear, 
that Abram's actions in verse 10 were not informed by faith, but rather they were driven by fear. What was Abram afraid of? Two things. First off, obviously, looking at verse 10, he was afraid of his circumstances. There was a famine. Now, let's just think about that really quick. Abram's fears were not irrational. All right, There was an actual famine, and it was a severe one at that. And he didn't want to die. He certainly didn't want his spouse to die. He wanted to be sure they were provided for. He was afraid of that. That's a rational fear. Furthermore, at some point, he must have thought to himself, holy, if, if, if I die, if my wife dies, what happens to the promised plan of God? As if God needs our help, but still, you, you can see the, the rational thought, the logic there. If we're dead, what's going to happen to this promise that God gave us? Right? So there is logic behind his fears, just like there's logic behind most of our fears. We're adults. We're not afraid of monsters in our bed or ghosts in our closet. Our, our fears are not irrational. They're based in reality or in the possibility of real things happening. And furthermore, there's other incidents that happen in life that can sometimes confirm the fears that we do have. You know, for example, my wife is deathly afraid to fly. I mean, she hates it. She just thinks it's moronical that you would get in an instrument of death like that. We're not meant to fly. She hates it. So you can imagine how delightful my experience was flying worth here to Cambodia for 24 hours. It wasn't delightful at all. Um, it took me months to calm her down just to get her into the actual airplane to take off. And I, at one point, I did tell her, honey, you are being irrational. I mean, it's much safer to fly than it is to drive on Poplar at 5 o'clock traffic. I mean, these people, they're not morons. They're trained. It's not like they got their license over the course of a weekend. They know what they're doing. You're being irrational. Finally, I calmed her down, and we're about to take off. And I kid you not, the pilot came over the intercom. He says, passengers, welcome. First off, I'd like to apologize for this plane. This is the last flight. We're retiring it after this trip. <laughs> that was a strange thing to tell your passengers. I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't want to know that. And I looked over to my wife. Her eyes are just wide. And so the stewardess is walking by, and it gets worse. She asked the stewardess, like, what was that all about? She goes, oh, yeah, this thing's on its last leg. I mean, it's, it's ancient. There were claw marks in my wife's seat cushion when we landed. Our fears are not irrational. They're logical, and there are things that happen that do confirm our fears. Here's the difference, though. It's what we do with our fears. It's where we take them. Abram had a legitimate fear. He was afraid of his circumstances. But there was no mention of God at all. No mention. I mean, just go back to when this whole thing started in verse 1 in chapter 12. God first spoke to Abram. And Abram then listened to God, and then Abram moved. At every major point in his journey, in those first nine verses, he waited on the Lord, and God spoke to him, and then he moved. But then we get to verse 10. Yes, there's an adverse situation. Yes, there's famine, but God did not speak. Furthermore, Abram did not wait patiently to hear from the Lord. He simply moved. What does the Apostle James tell us in chapter 5 of his epistle? He says, if the Lord wills it, and this is talking about major lordship decisions, if the Lord wills it, then I'll live my life. Then I'll go there and do this and do that. Now, this was a major decision for Abram. It wasn't as if, you know, Kroger was out of bread, so therefore he has to go to Sprouts to get bread. That's not what was happening here. It was called the land of promise for a reason. 
God obliged himself as the God of promise to Abram. And five times in the course of nine verses, uh, God tells Abram that he was going to bless him. Just trust me, Abram, I'm going to bless you five times in the course of nine verses. But when we get to verse 10, it seems like all of that just simply fell from his memory. Not only did he speak to God and hear from God, he actually saw a vision of the Lord, a theophany, this this glory. I don't know what it was like, but he saw something. He saw the glory of God. And one verse later, he forgets it and starts acting in accordance with his own will. So at this point, no longer is Abram simply informed by his fears. It's not bad to be informed by your fears. There was a famine. If there is a famine, think about that famine so you can make a rational, good, faithful decision, right? Whenever there's adverse situations, it's okay to be informed by that fear. But he's not being informed by that fear. He's being driven by it. He's acting in accordance with whatever his fears are. They're driving his decisions. That's what we see take place here. All right, so how, how many times do we allow that to happen in our own lives? I, I was just thinking about this. Now, this is stewardship season here at Second in the month of November. And I was thinking about how often have I been tempted when I've experienced, you know, a famine of sorts in my income. And when I experience that famine, immediately I forget everything I know to be true about God, that he is Jehovah Jireh, that he will provide for me and my family. But because I forgot about it, I was tempted to withhold my stewardship to the Lord. And my humanity and my flesh, that seems like a rational decision, but that is not a decision lived by faith. That's one driven by fear. And that's what happens to Abram here with these circumstances. His fear drove him from being a man of faithful obedience to a man of faithless pragmatism. He was, a fair, he was fearful of his circumstances. Secondly, he was fearful of people. And we see this in verses 11 and 12. We're going to talk more about this in our next point. But it's clear as day that he's fearful of Pharaoh and the rest of the Egyptians. I mean, after he disobeyed God, he went into the land of Egypt. And he knew that he was in trouble because Pharaoh is a violent man. His wife is very beautiful. She's also very rich because Sarai meant princess. So she had some clout to her. And he knew that because of that, they were going to be in danger with this violent person. But notice that fear overcame him because he started doing all sorts of irrational and crazy things. It gripped his heart, this fear of man. And once again, we see that he simply forgot everything he knew to be true about the Lord. Everything that he had saw, everything that God had said to him, he completely forgot about that. He was controlled and driven by his fears. As we see in Scripture, too, being driven by fear, fears, especially fear of man, simply is not compatible with a life of faith. Right? Because a man of faith would say what Psalm 118 tells us to say. The Lord is on my side. He is my refuge. He is my rock. Therefore, I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Because God is on my side. He would know the principle of man of faith that Proverbs teaches us that the fear of man is nothing but a snare. It captures us. It distorts our worldview. But there is safety and freedom in trusting the Lord. But that wasn't Abram. He was driven by his fears. Now let's ask the question then, how in the world did he go from being a man of faith to a man of faithlessness? In just one verse, I think it's clear from the text that he simply stopped praying. That's the reason. In verses 7 through 9, when he 
first came to Shechem and every other major town, he erected these altars of prayer where he called upon the name of the Lord. He waited on the Lord. The Lord spoke to him and he had this deep fellowship with the Lord. But in verse 10, he doesn't do that. In fact, he doesn't do it again until the Lord calls him back in chapter 13, verse 1. So for chapter 12, verse 10, through chapter 13, verse 1, he did not speak to the Lord at all. He stopped praying. Now, it's not shocking to me that he didn't pray to the Lord because I experienced those seasons in my life where I just quit talking to God, where I quit seeking him. But it is mesmerizing that we would do that, that Abram would do that. I mean, every time that we come on the, on the other end of those seasons of drought in our communication and our fellowship with the Lord, it's always mesmerizing to us that we would ever allow ourselves to do that. Why would Abram do that? He had just been speaking with the Lord. He had seen the Lord. He had communicated with God. He had deep fellowship. But here, he didn't. He knew what kind of a gift it was, but he didn't speak to the Lord. Brothers, prayer is a gift. It's a means of grace that God gives us that connects us to him. It's a means of grace where he communicates his grace to us. Uh, Tim Keller in his book on prayer, he says, you know, prayer is when we pray in accordance with God's will. He uses our prayers for his kingdom purposes. He's with us. But more than anything else, prayer is how he shapes our worldview and bends our heart back to him. He says prayer is this experience where we grow in powerful confidence that the Father, the creator of all the cosmos, truly is in control of every single detail of our life. When we pray, we grow in powerful confidence that God truly does turn bad things into good things for those who fear him and love him. We grow in powerful confidence when we pray that God will really never let the truly good things be taken from us. And we grow in powerful confidence of the promises that he gives us that the best is still yet to come. That's what happens in prayer. Prayer is when we take the promises of God, word-filled prayer, and we pray them back to God, and God speaks them back to us, and he confirms them in our hearts. He seals them to our consciences and to our minds. There really is no comparison. Nothing can take the place of daily communion with the Lord because it's through prayer and through word-filled prayer that we grow in confidence. There truly is no detail in our life that's too small for God to care about, and there's no situation in our life that's too big for God to handle. We can take every single thing to him. Abraham forgot that because he stopped praying, and that resulted in his vision for the things of this world becoming larger than his vision for God. You ever notice during those seasons of drought in your own prayer life, whatever molehill becomes a mountain? I mean, if, if our eyes are not set on the Lord, they're going to fall somewhere. And what we learn from this is that the less Godward we are looking, the more anxious and the more fearful and the more faithless we're going to become. That's just, that's just what happens. It's a cause and effect. Our worldview becomes skewed. Even as people of faith, when we're not daily communing with the Lord and praying his promises back to him and letting the Father through his spirit confirm those promises back to us, we will start believing the exact opposite of what the Bible teaches. We will start believing that he who is in the world is greater and more powerful than God who is in our hearts. That's what prayer does. Prayer reorients us back to truth and it reminds us that though our circumstances change, God changes not. But when we stop seeking him, we forget that. And our lives just begin to spiral. And that's what happens in Abram's life. Because next we see that his fear-driven life leads him to idolize himself. 
What we see here in verse 13 especially is when we give an inch to fear in our hearts, that fear just takes a mile. Then it will take another mile and so on and so forth. And this is seen clearly in this controversial plot of Abram to deceive Pharaoh. Now in verse 13, on the, on the surface of it, this just looks like the beginning of a really corny dad joke. You know, I mean, it's, it's almost funny if this really didn't happen. But because it happened, it's, it's really tragic. All right, just think about the scenario. Abram disobeyed God. He goes into the land of Egypt. He knows that he's in bad shape. And so this is the plan that he comes up with. All right, and this is just layman's terms. He goes, honey, have I told you lady, lately that you're really good looking? I mean, seriously, you, you are, you're hot. You, you are, I, I don't deserve you. You are a beautiful lady. I mean, he's buttering her up right here. Now, I don't know about you, but anytime I butter up my wife, she always asks me, what did you do wrong? I mean, it never works, but Abram apparently it worked at some point because he's buttering her up. Now, baby, you are so good looking. In fact, you're so good looking. As soon as Pharaoh gets a load of you, he's going to kill little old me. You don't want little old me to die, do you? Of course not. You love me and I love you. We don't want each other to die, right? So here's what I want you to do. For your sake, right, for your sake, I want you to cozy up to Pharaoh as soon as you get the opportunity. Sound good? Awesome. That's his plan in verse 13. What a slime ball. <laughs> now, it's really interesting that some scholars try to defend Abram's actions here. Um, so they point to a couple of different things. First off, they say, there, well, there was a custom during that, that era in Mesopotamia of where husbands would legally make their wives their sisters in order to protect them financially. Right? So they're saying, okay, well, if Abram did die, at least his wife would be protected financially. Okay. Others people say, well, well Sari technically was Abram's half-sister. So technically, it wasn't a lie. I actually read in a, in a volume. Anytime you have to say technically it wasn't a lie, it was a lie, right? Come on. He, he did all these things to save his own neck. Driven by fear, he started to idolize himself, which led him to take a posture of self-protectionism. And he did so, first off, at the expense, obviously, of his wife, Sarah. In spite of what theories that we could try to concoct to, to really protect the honor of our father in the faith, Abram, what is clear as day, just from a cursory reading the text, is that he turned his wife into an object. He turned the apple of his eye, the woman that God had blessed him with, into an object to be consumed for himself. He dehumanized, he sent her into a dadgum harem. We know what a harem is. He was willing to sacrifice her safety. He was willing to sacrifice her honor and her sexual purity to save his own neck. But that's not the only thing that he exalted himself over. He also exalted himself at the expense of God's promises. You got to believe when Moses first said this story to Israel, who, by the way, were on their way to the promised land when they first heard this, they must have had their minds blown. They must have said things like, Abram did what? Our father in the faith did that? Did he not remember the promise of God from Genesis 3.15 that he was going to restore the world through the seed of the woman? Has he already forgotten Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, that God in his grace chose our parents in the faith, Abram and Sari, to accomplish those purposes? And he is willing to sacrifice that by giving his wife to our greatest enemy, Pharaoh? Are you kidding me? And they would have been right because, human speakingly, he did put the promises of God on the chopping block to save his own skin. Being driven by fear, he took a posture of self-protectionism. 
And it came at the expense of others. Now, even though, friends, that this is just a, a really, you know, an extreme example of this, right? We, we'd never be in Abram's position, and I'm certainly sure that we would never do the exact same things that Abram did. Let's make no mistake about it. The motivations behind his behavior are common to every single one of us, right? Because ever since the Garden of Eden, when our first parent, Adam, took his eyes off the Lord and exalted himself, right? At the expense of others. Every single one of us born in sin had that poisonous weed of pride in our hearts. Where it's our knee-jerk reaction to exalt ourselves over other people, including God. Especially when we feel threatened to protect our rights and what we think is due to us. We do that all the time. And we do that even over stupid, silly things. We talked about the LSU-Bama game. Or someone did, brought that up. Fred did. I was reading an article earlier this week about that game. You know, when Babylon fell, Alabama, right? Two lying, lifelong friends. Um, they were like in their 50s, but they grew up together. One was a Bama fan, one was an LSU fan. This really happened. They watched the game together, and once the game started to get away, the LSU fans just started making fun of Bama. Started making fun of the great savior, Nick Saban, and started making fun of his friends. Something that we would do, you know, if we had rival teams as friends just watching the game together. This is what happened. The Bama guy got so threatened and so enraged, he went into his bedroom and pulled out a shotgun. The LSU friend got fearful, left. That Bama guy <laughs> knocked down the front door and shot birdshot in his best friend's back. He survived. The interesting part is, though, that he went back into the house and finished the game <laughs> after he shot his friend. That's in the newspaper. Now, that, again, is an extreme example, unless you are from the state of Alabama, and I think that's just probably par for the course, right? But, you know, we take our football seriously in Alabama. But the motivation is the same for every single one of us. We are quick to exalt ourselves at the expense of others, especially when we feel like our honor and our rights and what's due us is threatened. That's what Abram did. He exalted himself. Now, remember what we see in the scripture. Go back to the Tower of Babel. We know what God does to those who exalt themselves. He doesn't play with it. He humbles those who exalt themselves. However, he does exalt those who are humble. And Abram would find that out very quickly. But before we move on, let's just, let's just think about what we're learning so far. Brothers, the stones that God providentially gives us within his will are infinitely greater than the bread that the world offers us. Abram would have been far better off had he just stayed in that land of promise, even though there was a famine. He would have been far better off doing that than moving outside of God's will. God calls us to a life with himself, but it's a very difficult life. But make no mistake, whatever momentary suffering we experience in our obedience to God is nothing compared to the misery we bring onto ourselves when we disobey him. And Abram finds that out because later we see that the self, or that rather the fear-driven life leads to the idol of comfort. In verses 14 through 16, at first glance, it seems as if Abram's plan worked, right? Because first off, Pharaoh responds to he and Sarai um, the way that Abram thought. Secondly, Abram's plan actually worked. He's not dead, Abram. He's alive. What he didn't expect was that Pharaoh blessed Abram. He gave him prize and gift and riches after riches. I mean, we see at the end of verse 16 all the things that Pharaoh gave Abram. Abram was just trying to stay alive. He did not expect this. Abram was already a rich man. But after what Pharaoh does here, I mean, he is beyond rich. 
And he must have thought to himself, holy smokes, I did the right thing? I mean, I know it was kind of shady, but there must be an exclusionary clause in this whole ethics thing. God likes me, and he blessed me. I'm good. Because Pharaoh has given me everything I could ever possibly want. I mean, seriously, the domesticated camels that we see at the end of that list in verse 16, uh, archaeologically speaking, was a very rare thing during that time period. I mean, most likely Pharaoh was one of the few people that had domesticated camels, and now Abram had some too. Comparatively speaking, it would be like getting a Maserati. I mean, that's how expensive they were. So here's Abram getting Maserati after Maserati, all these piles of cash. It's like if Bill Gates and Fred Smith's bank accounts had a love child. That would be Abram right now. He is just loaded. Here's the thing, though. As comfortable, in this moment, Abram has never been this comfortable. Spiritually speaking, though, he has never been in more danger. And what that tells us is, is that the comforts that we have in this life cannot be synonymous with God's favor. We cannot conclude that if we're comfortable, we're living within God's will or favor, in spite of what the TV preachers say. And the reason I know that is because, one, God never promises us comfort in this life. As Reformed evangelical people, I know how much we dislike and hate the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. But, brothers, how often do we... Do we actually fall to that gospel's principles, that false gospel? It's not just the TV preachers. It's all of us that down deep in our hearts and our bones, we think that there's something wrong with difficulty. And we might think to ourselves, man, if I'm really just skating by, if everything's going well, God must be pleased with me. But how often, too, if things aren't going well, if we're facing adversity, we think to ourselves, oh, man, I did something wrong to, to make God mad at me. We do that often. But brothers, if we just give a cursory read to the scriptures, there, there is nowhere that we find that the Christian life is easy. Just think about the author and the perfecter of our faith, Jesus Christ. What does Jesus say? If he says, if you want to be a person of faith, if you want to follow after me, first off, deny yourself, which, by the way, is the exact opposite, right, of being comfortable to deny yourself. But he didn't stop there. He says, pick up the cross, which was an instrument of death, and follow me. What Jesus is saying that we must be willing to sacrifice comfort as the ultimate value in our life. And he's not just talking about those, those extravagant comforts. He is not simply saying, hey, don't spend all summer at your beach house. He's not simply saying that. He's not saying, hey, don't skip every Sunday during hunting season. That's not what he's saying. He's not even saying, hey, I want, to, I want you to give to me sacrificially. I mean, those are no-brainers. He is saying that I want you to sacrifice the basic comforts of this life as you follow me. What's the basic comfort? How about breathing? I mean, being upright is like the most basic comfort that we could want. Just being alive. Jesus says, I want you to be willing to even sacrifice that for my namesake. Jesus is saying that suffering isn't incidental to the Christian life. It's the essence of it because we are to share in his sufferings. Including sacrificing our most basic comfort, simply being alive for his count. I mean, just think about what he says in Matthew chapter 10. Jesus says, do not be afraid of he who can kill your body, but revere him who can kill both the body and the soul. Jesus right there is saying, listen, there's something worse than death in this life. First off, why in the world would we be afraid of something that's inevitable? I mean, 100 out of 100 kale eaters will die. 
probably because of kale. The, the jury's still out on that one, all right? <laughs> 10 out of 10 people who go to Gold's Gym will die. They will feel better and look better than me. And it's a good thing to steward your body. But still, they're going to die. So why would we let the fear of actually dying drive our life? But more theologically speaking, Jesus is saying here, there's something worse than death. How about dying after you die? We can just look at Abram and just look from the text and, and the theology and the faith that we have. It's like, Abram, why are you so concerned with this life when you should be infinitely more concerned with the life to come? But he was driven by his fear for those things. And ultimately, it led to his ruin. That's what we see. The, the idol of comfort ultimately leads to our ruin. At what point do you think Abram understood the full weight of his actions here? I mean, just think about what he did. At what point do you think his, file, his smile faded and he took his eyes off all of his new toys and he allowed his eyes to fall on his bride who was never smiling and was now being carried away by men he didn't know? His plan worked, but I wonder at what point did he understand the cost of that plan? Because i got to believe at some point with each passing Maserati camel, his heart began to get gripped with fear, guilt, and shame because as she went into that harem, he knew full well the cost. That's heartbreaking to think about, but brothers, what's even more heartbreaking is the fact that Abram didn't do anything about it. Even realizing what had happened, what he had done, never once does he cry out for God's intervention. He doesn't even cry out for his wife. He's just resigned to the fact that, that he has just ruined his life and ruined his marriage and ruined his wife. Why does he not even cry out to her? Why does he cry out to the Lord? Because that's what idols do. Idols, idols capture us. They're a snare. And it drives us further into a pit of fear and faithlessness and helplessness. I have been in that spot before, and I'm sure some of you have too. Some of you might be there right now. And you're asking yourself, how did I get here? How do I get out of this place? The first six verses of this half chapter tell us that as soon as we take our eyes off the Lord, as soon as we stop seeking Him, we will be driven by fear. And ultimately, that will take us to the pit of faithlessness where we will remain helpless. But brothers, the good news of this passage is, is that while we are helpless, God is the help of the helpless. In these last three verses, we see amazing things about the faithfulness of God. Friends, let's just think about this real, real quickly. The, the main point of this passage is not for us to learn morality lessons from Abram. There are important things we are to learn. But that's not the main point. The main point is for us to marvel at the unerring faithfulness of God and his unimaginable grace. What, what, what Moses wanted Israel to see, what Moses wanted Israel to experience, and what God wants us to see right now is that when God obliges himself to make covenant promises, not even the sin of his covenant people can prevent their fulfillment. God remains faithful to the faithless. And the first thing that we see is that God keeps his promises even to his undeserving people. We see that in verse 17. First off, God judges his and our enemies. He afflicts Pharaoh with a curse. Now that goes back to chapter 12, verse 3, where God promises to curse anybody who dishonored Abram or his spiritual posterity. And that's what he does here. 
Now, we might say to ourselves, well, that doesn't seem fair because it was Abram's issue and his lie that put Abram in this problem or that put Pharaoh in this problem in the first place. But let's just keep reminding ourselves that uh, Pharaoh's hands are not clean here. He took Sarai against her will. There was no wedding ceremony. He just threw her right into his harem. She was about to be sexually exploited. His hands are not clean. Furthermore, he is the epitome of evil, much like Rome was in the New Testament. Pharaoh in the Old Testament was the picture of God's enemies and God's people enemies. So by God cursing Pharaoh, by inflicting, he is showing us that God will keep his promises to make all things right. That he will keep his promises to make justice flow. And what's awesome and what's amazing is that God will preserve his people. Because remember, when these plagues hit Pharaoh and Egypt, Sarai and Abram were preserved. God kept them from being afflicted. They were deserving. They're sinners. But they were God's people. God keeps his promises. Secondly, God continues to bless those who are undeserving. The main cool thing about the first nine verses is the fact that God saved Abram against Abram's own will. He was saved according to the sovereign grace of God. What's amazing here is that God keeps Abram. The most amazing thing in my life that I can just reflect on in my life with the Lord, yes, it's amazing that God saved me against my will. I was not concerned with Jesus at all before he saved me. But what's even more mesmerizing to me than that is that Christ keeps me because now I know who God is. I know his commands. I know his love and I know his promises. Yet I continue to sin against him. Yet God in his love commits himself to me. Are you kidding me? And he does that to Abram here through severe mercy. Severe mercy. He rebukes Abram through a pagan named Pharaoh. And he causes Abram's life or he allows Abram's life to get to the bottom of his barrel. Why does he do that? So Abram would finally realize he is helpless without God. Some of us in this room have experienced severe mercy. It is not fun, but if you have experienced it, you are thankful. Why? Because God loves you so much, he'll all but kill you in order to get you home. That's how faithful God is, which is the last promise that God keeps. God brought Abram home. In verse 10, it was Abram's faithlessness that led him to Egypt. But in chapter 13, verse 1, it was God's providential grace and mercy that brought Abram back to the land. And that just goes to show us, brothers, that God did not choose Abram because he was faithful, but Abram later became faithful, as we will see in subsequent chapters, because God chose him. And because God continued to show grace to Abram, who grew far older than any of us to do more evil than we ever will, then we can rest assured, too, that God will continue to show us grace. God is faithful to keep his promises. Ultimately, God fulfills his promises in the greater Abram, Jesus Christ. Brothers, it is amazing how this passage points us to Jesus. First off, our natural stance as sinful people are to be afraid. We're afraid of the things of this world. We're afraid of the one who is in this world. Sometimes we're even afraid of God. That's the reason that we sin in the first place, because we're fearful that God is going to welch on his promises. So we seek provision elsewhere. But then once we realize that we've sinned against God, we're still fearful of him, so we run away from him because we feel like we've forfeited God's grace. But time and time again through Scripture, particularly in this passage, we are reminded we have absolutely nothing to be afraid of. Because God's promises are not contingent upon you. They never will be. They're contingent upon God. And the point of this passage is not to set our eyes on Abram, but rather it's to set our eyes on the one to whom Abram points to, the seed of the woman, Jesus Christ. Brothers, just look at the parallels here. 
Famine was before Abram. The cross was before Jesus. But unlike Abram, Jesus sought his father's will. Like Abram, Jesus left his father's land. But unlike Abram, he did so out of obedience. And he came to dwell in the land of the wicked. And while here, he willingly took his father's stones of providence. He never compromised with the bread that Satan offered him in the desert. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus could have sold his future bride, you, to a harem of hell like Abram did his wife. But unlike Abram, Jesus in his weakest moment remained faithful like he always had been and always will be. Shockingly, like Pharaoh, Jesus received his father's curse. Unlike Pharaoh, he was undeserving and he did so willingly so that you and I might never have to. God said he would bless the world through Abram and he has and his name is Jesus Christ. And he wants us to set our eyes on Christ because, brothers, Jesus fulfills everything that God promises in Adam and Abram and elsewhere. He is the yes to every single one of God's promises. Jesus died for our sins. He was raised for our justification. He ascended to the Father. And if you are in him currently, spiritually speaking, you are sitting right beside God the Father and God the Son. And we have been given the promise that one day, too, we will rise bodily. And Paul gives us the promise in Colossians chapter 3 that until that day and the space between lived in the already, not yet, currently, by faith, we are hid in Christ with God, which means that we are just as loved and just accepted by God as Christ is. What in the world do we have to be afraid of? There's a lot to be afraid of, brothers. But as Paul says, there's not one thing in this world, including famine, including persecution, including the powers of hell that could ever keep you from the love of God the Father as those in Christ Jesus. What do we learn from that? The first two I'm just going to skip because I know we got to go. As believers, and it's already not yet, we must be prepared that there will be trials in this life. But don't be afraid because God promises himself to us during those trials. We can expect God's grace during those trials. We can live by faith expecting God to deliver us because that's just the type of God that God is. But even when we fail, this is the main principle, we must keep our eyes on Christ. Right? Because what we learn from this and elsewhere is that the same thing that prevents us from being afraid and faithless is the same one who delivers us from when we are afraid and faithless, and his name is Christ. Abram learned that. He learned to set his eyes on Christ as much as Jesus was revealed to him in the Old Testament. But he did not get there out of his own strength. He got there because God proved time and time and time again that he is faithful even when we are faithless. One of my favorite stories in church history is from John Chrysostom, one of the greatest church fathers in the church history. Uh, he was a man just like us. I mean, he, he was a sinner. He, there was many peaks and valleys in his faith. He experienced a lot of persecution in his life, and he had terrible health. So he was up and down just like we are. But there's this great moment of adversity in his life when after his profound ministry, the emperor was tired of it and threatened John. And essentially told John, if you, if you don't stop preaching this gospel that's messing up my world, I'm going to kick you out of my kingdom. And I'm going to put you in the far reaches of the world where you cannot be safe. And it wasn't safe outside of empire. But this is what John said. He says, you cannot banish me for this is my father's house. The emperor said, fine, I'm just going to kill you. How about that? 
John said, no, you cannot, for my life is hid with Jesus and God. Okay, well, if you don't care about dying, I'm just going to make your life miserable until you die. I'm going to take away all your treasures. You'll be a pauper. John says, no, you cannot, for my treasure is in heaven, and that is where my heart is. Fine, if you don't care about that, I'll kill your family and drive away your friends. You'll be all alone. He says, no, you cannot, for I have a friend in heaven from whom you cannot separate me. I defy you, for there is nothing that you can do to harm me. That is a courage I hope I have if I'm ever in a situation like that. That's a bold faith. That's a life lived, driven by the promises of God, not the fears of this world. How did he get there? I assure you he did not get there by trying harder. He certainly did not get there by worrying about his failures. How he got there is clear in his response. He got there by setting his eyes on Christ. Brothers, the the word of promise that God gave Abram came to fulfillment in the incarnate word, Jesus Christ. He accomplished everything that we were supposed to. And if you have faith in him, he has given you everything. His record. And even still, he commits himself to you because he continues to speak to you through his word and through his spirit. And he says to you at least 365 times, brother, do not be afraid. Why? Because Jesus says, for I am with you. And if I am for you and with you, who could possibly be against you? And he's the same one that gives us the assurity, the assured promise that on the day to come, we'll hear our Father say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Just like the despicable, faithless Abram heard. How do we live this life by faith in this space between where we experience much failure? Brothers, keep your eyes on Jesus Christ and rejoice Because while you will fail, he cannot fail. Because Christ is God. He's pledged himself to you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for the gospel of Jesus, for the good news that you give to undeserving people like us. Father, we are faithless. But help us to always remember by the power of your spirit, seal to our hearts and minds that you remain faithful to us. Father, fill us with all of your fullness. Uh, Affirm and seal the promise of the gospel to our hearts. And may us live in response with grateful gratitude. Living for your namesake. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.